ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the That's What She Said podcast. My name is Alexa Dat. I'm here with producer Kyle and Sheldon. We are at the Red Bull Studios downtown in Manhattan. Lovely studios. We love working here. And we are here with a special guest. We've got Andy Martino of The Daily News, senior writer as you have been promoted and you are also a baseball analyst on SNY. Hi, Andy. Hello, Alexa. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for having me here. We're glad to have you. So let me talk to you about this promotion first. Mm -hmm. So what happened from where you were at the Daily News to now where you are? Are you in a different department? Yeah, totally different. In fact, I'm I'm off the sports desk at the Daily News entirely, which uh, isn't always obvious because I'm we're doing so much together for on the Mets side and the baseball side for TV mm-hmm. but I've, I'm very lucky right now I got a nice variety in my life or you know I covered the Phillies beat a long time ago the Mets beat for years and I did baseball columns one around about a year ago a little bit more than a year ago in the holiday season of 2014 into 2015 a guy named Jim Rich who at the time was kind of an editor who was a rising star at the Daily News he'd been in sports which is where I met him then he went over to news and at that point was running the website. He came to me and he said, I've got this idea for long-form stories on our you know, tabloid website. You look at the Daily News website, historically it's like a TMZ kind of thing, right? So long-form stories is pretty radical for that. He's like, what I want to do is try whatever viral topics are going on at the moment and turn those into magazine-type stories. Like wow. write them. I mean, it's the thing that people are clicking on, but do instead of doing like a slideshow of somebody's, you know, walking down the street or whatever trash we might put up to get clicks, like try writing it like you'd write it for New York Magazine or for The New Yorker, so as well as you could. Uh-huh. Uh, so the trial run we did for that was something on Taylor Swift, which at the time, that December 2014, you know, her album was out and it was, she was the biggest celebrity in the world at, at that time, sort uh-huh. of like Adele was a year later. Everyone was talking about her for a month or two. Uh, so she had been telling this story on the talk shows that was like, the, the reason I, or the, the way that I learned how to write music was I uh, was at home as a little kid, 11, 12 years old. Some guy came over to fix my computer. He saw that there was a guitar in the corner. He said, Let me teach you three chords. So Taylor uh, says, Sure. And he teaches her three chords. And then she writes this first song, and it's just magic. And from there. <laughs> and Jim Rich, this guy who at the time had this idea, this editor was like, that's got to be bullshit. There's no way that, like, it was that easy for uh-huh. and it, So, and by the way, she's the most famous person in the world, so how do we know this guy's name? So the assignment was, go to Reading, Pennsylvania, where, where she's from, mm-hmm. find this unnamed guitar tech, or computer tech to taught her how to play guitar, okay. and figure out the actual origin of Taylor Swift. So, huh. and then write it as long as you want, take as much time as you need. This is a baseball off-season, so I, I had some flexibility to right. do that. And, you know, I prepped for it on my holiday vacation time and everything. It was a total experimental thing. We were just trying to do on our own time or whatever. So uh, I went there. I spent several days there, and I found the guy. Uh-huh. And as I suspected, the story turned out to be like 99% bullshit. He, <laughs> he taught her guitar for years in her house. Yeah, he sometimes fixed computers, but that had nothing to do with why they met and, and the whole thing. So so Taylor, according to him, Taylor and her, her parents had basically concocted the story to make it sound like magic, right? Uh-huh. When in fact, she grinded it out through years of guitar lessons and everything. So anyway, from there, I built up this whole story of how she grew up and the people around her and found her babysitters and this whole thing. And we wrote it, and the, and the question was, are people going to click on this? Is uh-huh. this actually going to work? And if it worked, then Jim could go to his superiors and say, we should do this, like, more. We should create a department. Uh, and it worked. It, people were interested in Taylor Swift. We found out something that people didn't know, uh, so that worked. So uh, 
long story short, over the course of the entire year, uh, mostly 2015, uh, there's a lot going on with the paper. Uh, it was for sale, then it wasn't for sale. Uh, eventually, the owner of the paper, Mort Zuckerman, pulled it off the market and said, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to keep the paper, but we're going to do it dramatically differently. He promoted Jim uh, to editor-in-chief. He runs the paper now. He's the guy who's responsible for all these great front pages that are getting so much attention. Like, yeah. Really revitalized the brand. They're unbelievable, by the way, those front pages. Right. Yeah. Donald Trump, uh, the gun stuff. I mean, they're just they're very, very kind of radical. And uh, so his idea was, okay, now I'm creating a long-form department. He, he, he pulled me over, uh, pulled another guy over uh, from, from who was a sports editor. Uh, they hired two people, two writers. They hired an editor, uh, moved over another editor. So it was this whole, now a whole project. And uh, I said, if you're going to uh, do this, make me senior writer. And he said, okay, well, a title doesn't cost me anything. So <laughs> you can have that title. You can be a senior writer. So that, like, Alexa, I'll take it. is how I became a senior writer. So really, there are occasional sports stories. Uh -huh. I wrote a story about the winter meetings for baseball. So, I mean, I did that for years, so you might as well draw on that expertise. But I report to a different excuse me, different editor now, different boss, and uh, yeah, totally, uh, for the Daily News' sake, I'm, I'm doing that long-form stuff now off, off the baseball beat. Did you meet Taylor Swift? Because I watched a really, uh, really interesting documentary about her talking about how she basically is self-made. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, this could also be part of the concocted story, right. but she has her own tour bus, you know, she designs her own sets, she wrote, writes her own songs. All of this is everything that she has made. Did you get that impression when you talked to people around her, or, or did you meet her? Well, I didn't meet her. I, you know, you try when uh -huh. you write a story to reach out to people. And one thing I learned very quickly is, not, not unlike in sports, access pieces and profiles are done so regulated that they're often not interesting. If you read most magazine stories about Taylor Swift, they read that way. She's great, everything's original, da-da-da, because they got to her, right? So, right. Uh, Jim, my editor, had made the point at the time that, well, you know, if we can get an interview with her, great. You know, try. It's only fair to try. Only fair to her to try. Right. But uh, most of these stories are going to be better if you don't get to the person because you construct a reality from those around that person, which can be much deeper and, 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 and really more accurate than what a person's trying. Like, we're all here. I mean, I'm sitting here on some level trying to sell myself as something, right? Like, we're all doing that. So you get past anybody's BS, you probably have a better story. Yeah. Uh, so, so... Uh, I was told at that time she wasn't doing any press, and then when I got to the town, uh, you could tell that her people were not were not comfortable with that. But uh -huh. they couldn't stop me. You know, they can stop me from her. They, that that's the better. That's what's better about doing a piece that's not dependent on access. They can say yes or no. You can have Taylor, but they can't say you can't knock on these doors. You can't go look for these people. You can't go move into the town for several days to find these people. So uh, we didn't. And to answer your second question, uh, what we found about her was that a lot of people were really rolling their eyes in that town about all that stuff you just said, Alexa, having to do with her reputation. And I tried to be really fair because you also have to be careful. Maybe people have sour grapes. Maybe right. you know she made it out of this small town and, and small city and, and people are jealous. So you you got to weigh all these things. Right. And I tried to portray something that was really fair. Like she was obviously had kind of a spirit and ambition that was too big for this place. Uh -huh. And that seemed to rub some people the wrong way. But she also has this amazing talent to connect with people that no matter how sanitized you know, she or her representatives or her record company wanted to make her story, uh, what she, the way she connects is pretty real. Uh -huh. It seems to rise above a lot of what pop music. And I started listening to it. This got cut out of the story, but like, you know the song Blank Space? Like uh -huh. So I had to like immerse myself in her music when I was writing the story just because I felt like I had to know everything that I could know. Uh -huh. And I'm in the hotel room one night 
and like I have a drink or two at dinner and I'm working and the song comes on and I'm just like all stirred up and I'm like, wow, this like I was Did you start left. singing and dancing to it? I'm not gonna comment on that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just gonna say the music is very moving at times. If you're listening to it the right way, and I wanted to be respectful of that, right? Just, if you're drunk alone in a hotel room, <laughs> it's the right way to listen to it, and yes, you will start dancing. Exactly. I'll go ahead and speak for you. It, well, you I'm gonna I'll let your comment stand. Uh, but the point is, you know, you had to be fair. You want to be fair. Uh, so I would say that uh, you, I concluded that she created a myth about herself and a storyline that had something to do with reality and did a lot of cleaning up of reality. But the story tried to be not judgmental of that because that who wouldn't do that? I mean, one of my favorite artists is Bob Dylan. His name's Robert Zimmerman. He's a, he's a kid from the Midwest. He comes to New York 50 years ago and creates an identity called Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. It happens. Yeah. He, that's, how, that's what these people do. So uh, anyway... She's full of it, but I don't I don't blame her for it. How's that? Of course. Okay. So I want to talk a, a lot about your long-form story writing, um, but I want to draw on your sports background first because there's a lot happening recently in sports, and of course this is a sports podcast, but um, we always love delving into the personalities that we have sitting across from us and, uh, and their careers. So I want to ask you about Steph Curry first. Mm. Did you watch the game on Saturday night? Uh, no, I wasn't watching it live, but I certainly... But have... you saw what happened. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, that's he's got that ability to take over the whole conversation, right? right. So, yeah. So, Thunder Warriors, 118-118, tied in overtime. Six seconds left, he throws up an incredible three, and he makes it. And he goes crazy. He yep. celebrates on the bench, he comes out to half court, he does a little dance, a little two-step. Do you think that his persona in sports has gotten bigger than he's able to handle? Hmm. Well, I think his persona has been a very interesting thing, right? Because he's gotten, he, for some reason, has gotten uh, a reputation as being this wonderful guy who's kind of above criticism where people, I mean, people have been criticizing LeBron for years and he's yeah. gotten all this for the complex legacy, whereas Curry uh, has not yet. But now that the spotlight is bigger, now that the success is larger, it did seem like after that there was so, there was some more discussion of like just a little should, bit though yeah yeah I think, but not as much as guys like Cam Newton or yeah. Kaepernick I mean I know it's a different sport or even some of the guys in the NBA I feel like he's a little bit above some of that criticism for some reason well I think that he has not been subject to it definitely and that's an interesting thing I mean there's a lot of uh, complicated reasons probably that I couldn't speak to firsthand having to do with race and the way that black people are perceived in the culture uh, that effect the impact i mean cam newton made this point himself and is in more of a position to make it well than i am uh but steph curry has in some ways uh other uh whereas lebron has been i think seen as a, a more complicated force where people have been more willing to attack that curry's been above that and and i do think that's an interesting i don't think i don't think the people were willing to attack lebron until the decision mm-hmm. when he was in cleveland the first time and his teams weren't very good as a whole he didn't catch this level of criticism let me know if i'm wrong or no, not, but it wasn't he, did. he didn't You're catch right. that not to the extent that he did once the decision happened, right once he went but to miami he did because he was such a good player and people started comparing him to jordan very early on in his career. And when you start getting compared to Jordan, people start hating on you hard because nobody wants to hear you and Jordan in the same sentence. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And people wanted to knock that down. In some ways, this has nothing to do with race or nuances of race, and people are just jealous of success and start to want to knock that down, which we may be seeing a little with Curry. I think in other ways, uh, there's troubling stuff that pops up, sort of, I don't know, racism in the way sports is written about and discussed is sort of subtle. But you can see this, like, when Dan Gilbert, the the 
Cavs owner wrote that nasty letter when LeBron left to Miami, made a career decision to make money and, and do what he wanted to do and for himself and his family. And I treated him like he escaped, you know? Yeah. So I thought that was, that was troubling. Uh, and uh, so there's ways I think that race come into the way these comes into the way these guys are perceived. Uh, Cam Newton uh, and, and Peyton Manning. I mean, the, you, you brought up Cam Newton, Alexa. That yeah. Cam, uh, Peyton Manning now has finally gotten some criticism because it's been so out there. But somebody who was in trouble for sexual assault when he was in college, somebody who has been accused of performance enhancing drug use, uh, all these kinds of things around him, and that for some reason everyone's like, oh, we're rooting for Peyton, but Cam dances, so right. we don't like him. And to me, to not see, goes back to these very complicated, nuanced uh, race perceptions. But I hear people going, oh, that's not about race at all. Like, to me, I mean, I, I appreciated when Newton said that, and, and I think the black athlete is perceived uh, with less of leeway to behave in a way that it, it just has self-expression, which, you know, Cam Newton gets criticized for, and and Peyton Manning's done a lot worse or been accused of a lot worse and hasn't gotten that kind of criticism. Yeah, well, a lot of the things that we were talking about had to do with with race when we were having this discussion. Yeah. And it had a lot to do with how the hip-hop culture permeates mm-hmm. into sports. And guys who grew up in that hip-hop culture behave differently. Um, and that's just an, an expressive you know, uh, form of emotion that comes from where their upbringing. So guys like RG3 are going to be different than guys like Cam Newton. Mm-hmm. RG3 wasn't really brought up in a in a hip hop culture necessarily. He was an army brat and he was, you know, an only child and his he was just raised differently than than other guys in the league. But Steph specifically really surprised me and you wanted to have this conversation. I don't know. Well, we've, God knows we've why. Had, mm-hmm. We've had this conversation before. It's a good topic and, and one that shouldn't be avoided. Well, I agree. It, well this it, is we're the gonna co- take it a little We're going to take it a different you're direction. You're a writer and you get to choose you have to choose your words that mm-hmm. you use and you might, you know, make certain decisions to help your piece along. We've had this conversation conversation with Joe Budden and him and I agreed Steph Curry's arrogant. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. Mm. I think superstars are arrogant. They almost sort of have to be. She says 100% he's not arrogant. I have trouble with understanding the definition of arrogant in Mm -hmm. this context. Because to me, arrogant has a negative connotation. And I don't think what Steph Curry is doing after he's, you know, while he's celebrating is negative. I don't see it as as having any sort of detrimental effect to the game. So why are we putting, to me, a negative word association with it? Well, that's interesting. The word arrogant does imply, I agree with you, something that you wouldn't, a quality that you wouldn't want to say. So uh, supremely confident or something would be less, like, potentially derogatory. Maybe. Right, exactly. But if you're saying arrogant, you're saying, arrogant to me is like, okay, Donald Trump is arrogant. You right. know, it's like, uh, but, but I agree that anyone who's that successful in sports uh, has to be way more confident to a point of a fault where, I mean, to compete right. m- more than any of us, really. Right. Uh, so, I mean, the question then I think becomes, you know, none, none of us can sit here and say, what is Steph Curry really like inside? Right. right. Uh, because, I mean, even if we covered him, even if we were Warriors beat writers, that's a difficult thing to say. You don't know a person's heart. Yeah. So to me, what's interesting is instead of, uh, looking, trying to psychoanalyze and look at how people are inside to say like, how are they perceived? And what does that say? And that's kind of Alexa, what you were getting into before the discussion, like, is he an arrogant human being to me is a little less interesting than do you think he's arrogant? Do you think he's arrogant? Why? What baggage do we bring to the table? That's a good point. Uh, that why, why would I say arrogant? Why would you not? Yeah, Kyle, what's your baggage? Yeah. <laughs> my, my baggage, I don't know. I, I don't, I mean, when I say arrogant regarding superstar, like I don't see it as a negative thing. Like mm-hmm. I, a guy like LeBron But do is you arrogant. inherently, a guy do you like inherently, Wayne hold on, do you inherently agree 
that the definition of the word arrogant has a negative connotation. Oh, yeah. No, and I, I said that yesterday when we were talking. I agree that when you say, like he said, Donald Trump is an arrogant person. Yes, you see it that way. But it's different for superstar athletes. Because they, the way they. But carry... why is a superstar politician any different than a superstar athlete? Well, are we going to throw around superstar politician when we're talking? That's exactly uh, oh, what that Donald Trump a, is. You, you think okay. he's not a superstar? You don't think Donald Trump is a superstar? I... That guy is a superstar. <laughs> That's the only reason he is That's even right. considered a presidential candidate. He's a superstar. I mean, for him, it's a good thing. If you were to walk up to Donald Trump and tell him he's arrogant, he'd probably say thank you. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, I guess, how they also perceive themselves. But when I look at superstar athletes and the way they perform and they're consistent top performers, that's why they're superstar athletes. I don't see calling them arrogant as a bad thing because they're out there knowing that they are better than everyone on the court, on the ice, on the field mm-hmm. that is around them. And they know that they can have their way most games and do whatever they want because they're that good. I don't see it as that bad of a thing when you're talking sports. Well, I wonder if uh, that would be the the more common perception or if more people would say like oh i think for curry it's new too because it would maybe maybe it sounds negative for curry because everything we ever heard about him to this point was oh he's nice he's his daughter's cute he's kind of da 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 and i think it goes back to i think you made a really good point alexa about about athletes who were raised in or represent in their style personal style hip-hop culture Mm -hmm. because that to to the white audience, and I'm speaking here as a white sports writer who's been friends with white sports writers who watch some of the unintentionally coded language and the way they talk about guys and write about guys. Uh-huh. I think that guys who 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 don't in their personal style uh, come from that hip hop culture are uh, seen as less threatening among the white ticket buying and viewing public. Yeah. So for Curry to be seen as arrogant is a turn for him because people the the overwhelmingly affluent white fan base of professional sports is like, ah, he's nice. He's right. non-threatening. These other guys with their baggy pants, da-da-da. Right. So uh, that's what's interesting to me is that Curry's starting to get through. It's almost like, hey, you were supposed to keep down in your little box that we put you in of nice and not celebratory and not anything like Cam Newton. You're supposed to be the nice one. So I think that to me, that's where I get into how it's interesting how athletes are perceived. Right. It's like however you are inside – now that we're talking about you differently, what does that say about us as a culture? Right, of course. And the fact that him and Cam are such good friends and he's kind of been doing some of these antics that Cam has, you know, with them posting pictures of themselves being undefeated and him uh, with the gong at the at the game on the sidelines. He didn't really just kind of start this out of nowhere. Once he started being successful, he started kind of playing along. That's mm-hmm. part of his persona. Also, you have to remember, he came out of college not as like a highly touted recruit, he also, you know, in high school wasn't this player that everyone sees him as now. He was injured, you know, he's and he's built himself up into a successful player on a, in a very successful organization. So for me, I think a lot of his celebration and letting loose and being able to be himself, which is how I perceive it at least, is a product of him getting to where he's always wanted to be and he's never been able to be there before. Mm. You know, he hasn't been successful at all the different levels of his career. Now he's successful and he's like, you know what? I'm celebrating. I'm having a good time. To me, it just seems very genuine. But like I said, I don't have a problem with any of that. And like, I don't see it as a negative thing in this context. Okay. Which I had hoped we'd get some clarity, but we didn't. But it's fine. Well, I was unable to provide said clarity, but I think it's a great, I think that that's the point. These are very complicated discussions. Like how we, this is one of the things about writing about sports that the things that made me want to do it, made me want to keep doing it for a long time. How people perceive athletes with uh, through the lenses of race gender uh, class all these kinds of things how we talk about our famous athletes because because athletes are 
in many ways the most mainstream famous people in the country yeah. is fascinating. Uh, how we talk about Brady, Manning, Newton, uh, Curry, LeBron. Uh, baseball's a little tougher, I think. It's a little more of a niche thing. Uh, but there are probably some guys, I mean, Puig in baseball. All these, like, When we talk about these guys, we're talking about our values and like unstated stuff that is even like you got it inspired the, a discussion of, of whether what the connotation is the meaning of arrogant between you guys that, that's what i love about these conversations right that's what's interesting to me about sports more than the games is is what we learn about ourselves and just what we think say about these guys yeah you mentioned baseball and Yuana Cespedes had his car show this week mm. uh capped off by riding in on horseback do you find that uh, you know, is this ad nauseum at this point? Were you entertained by it all the way up till the end, like I was? I, I thought the car thing was getting old, and then when he came in on the horse, I was like, "All right, you win. <laughs> this is fine. This is funny." Uh, I think it's it, these things are a fine line, of course. I mean, my my overwhelming reaction to that is to say, "Good," because I just said baseball is not really even mainstream American culture. It, it's it's very niche. People who love baseball have a hard time hearing this, but your sport is not that widely discussed among like listen to any national sports like, look, look at uh, if you watch pti or something like every once in a while they'll toss baseball a topic right, right but it's right. really not that big so when somebody can get himself on the main stage of american sports a baseball player can yeah. to me that's great and that's what cespedes did and just for the mets more specifically a team i covered for many years when they were way off the grid of, of popularity to be able to have some buzz around their parking lot in Port St. Lucie is pretty cool for them. Yeah. Now, having said that, uh, I know baseball players as a group very well, and I know that they get very jealous of attention, mm -hmm. and they don't like it when one guy stands out too much. And then by the end of it, Cespedes was holding. I mean, I wasn't there, but but I, you know, just from talking to Pete, a lot of people who were down there, his car guy like held a press conference in the parking lot, talk about his business. It's like, yeah. oh, all right. Now we're doing an ad for you, so this is not as fun. They're spontaneous or whatever. Right. So it toes that line of commercialism and personality. Yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I overall I thought it was pretty cool. What, what did you think of it? I loved it. I loved every minute of it. The only, I mean, the, the impromptu press conference in the parking lot was a little bizarre. But to me, also, I understand the flip side of it where he's getting hooked up for these cars and this guy is, is doing all of the work. Mm. So he wants to, because he's a good guy, he wants to give the guy credit. So he wants to put him out there. Plus, Ioannis doesn't speak great English, and this guy does. So if he can speak for him kind of on his behalf mm -hmm. and explain the cars and describe what's going on and, and give them a little bit more pub, sure. And, I mean, what else is going on down in spring training that these guys can't take five minutes out of their day and, you know, ask the car guy right. a couple of questions? To me, that was like the the, you know the least harmless part of the whole thing. But I loved watching these cars, and I'm not even a huge car person, but to me, you know, the candy coating was cool. Watching the different cars roll out and then capping off with the horse was, yeah. it was unbelievable. The horse, Noah Syndergaard on the horse was, I mean, it was cool that he brought another, I mean, again, I, I didn't expect this conversation to be so related to race and culture and ethnicity and whatever, but it's true, and people want to deny this, in baseball, there's a tremendous divide between yeah. Spanish-speaking players, from yeah. mostly from Latin America, and white American players. Yeah. And, and the Mets historically have had a problem with this that's been publicized, but every team has a problem with this. You yeah. walk into a clubhouse and you tell me there's not a race problem in baseball, and, and you're not even looking, because it's like conversations over here in one language, over here in another language. So, yeah. for Cespedes and Syndergaard, who's a big strapping white dude with blonde hair from Texas, yeah. who's like originally like a Viking or whatever, you know, <laughs> like you couldn't have, and then the Cuban guy, to be having fun together, riding on these horses, 
uh, subtly bridges a cultural gap that's very good for that clubhouse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's part of the generational gap, too, you know, kind of closing. Because these guys, now that they're younger and, and kind of has, realize they have similar personalities, can communicate on that level, like just being mm. fun and, and outgoing guys. And yeah, and it was funny because we were talking earlier, we were talking actually yesterday about whether we thought Noah was a horse guy. If totally he, like, not a horse rid- guy. And he's not a horse guy because... But first of all, when he was asked about the horses, he was like, yeah, I mean, they're like big, powerful animals. Like, you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, I, so I like wasn't even himself. sure. Yeah. He yeah. was like, uh, you know, I got off. My legs were kind of wobbly. It's, I mean, it's as if he had never stepped foot on a horse. And Terry even kind of yeah. made fun of him in the press conference. It was like, I don't know. I saw Noah grab a batting helmet. And that to me was weird. Like, it, it kind of uh, debunks the myth of big, you know, strapping yeah. guys from Texas and, and how they ride horses. So. To me, the whole thing was was really interesting, and as a Mets fan, you had to love it, right? Well, I just, yeah, I mean, I like just that it's it's different that we're seeing from the Mets over mm-hmm. the last, I guess, fifteen years when I've actually been paying attention to baseball, even though it's like the least of my sports that I care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just nice to see they're a fun group. I like that they're so different from the straight laced Yankees, mm-hmm. especially in this area. That they're just they look right now like a fun group of guys who made it so far and just fell a bit short last year. That you thought that would be enough buzz for them already. Wait, hold on. Here's the other question. Do you feel like because they didn't win the World Series and they fell short that the celebration is a little much? Because that's one of the criticisms that they're getting. Shouldn't you be going into spring training angry is what mm. people are saying. Well, but that's mean, not their that's not their style. You got to be yourself, right? That, yeah. yeah. Like when, when we talk about the Cam Newton stuff, like it's him being himself. I like people who are true to like themselves and that are being themselves. And that's what the Mets are doing. Like they're a young team. I, their average age has to be around 24 to 25 at this. Like, they're not that old of a team. Be young. Like, they, every, we've been talking about the young pitching, the young core of pitching. You know, David Wright. Play to your strengths. Be the David young Wright team. David Wright is not young, by No, the way. he's not. He's not. But he's like, but he's no, like the elder statesman on the team. Be the team that you are, which is a young team. You have this wild personality in Cespedes who came back, and he is a personality. Just own it. Own yeah. all of it. Your fans are down there loving it. I don't hear fans complaining about it. I hear people who are, you know, baseball writers in well, general just saying, yeah. why aren't you acting like the Royals? Because you're not the Royals. Let me talk about the Royals baseball last writers. year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and I can speak for this group because I was one and have been one, and, and, and some, some of my best friends are baseball writers. I'm, I'm a recovering baseball writer, and I think that one thing that we fall into, uh, I'm going to say we, so it's not like I'm you know criticizing others. Uh, I tried to avoid this best I could over the years. It's like, Okay, uh, every beat writer's grinding it out over like who's gonna make the bullpen, who's gonna be the lat, you know, is the who's gonna be the backup catcher, Plawecki or Johnny Monell, and I'm sorry, you know, pardon my language, but sometimes when I step back, I go, who fucking cares? <laughs> I mean, they're gonna be, and I don't mean to belittle reporting. I was trying to break these stories too, but like to to care about that at the expense of cool cars and the horses and the personality stuff and the larger, like, more serious issues that we get have gotten into here with, with, with race and everything else. Anything is more interesting than a roster move because, like, those things happen a million times over the years. So I think, I, I love that I'm hearing from you guys that you would actually, you want to hear about that stuff because I think baseball writers who control the information that you get often fall into, like, what happens between the lines is what's important and everything else is just superfluous or, or noise or whatever. And how's it going to play in the clubhouse? Or are they too? It's like, okay, who cares? It's like, it's fun. Enjoy it. It's entertainment, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. That's a huge part of it. Um, Kyle, you mentioned the Yankees. Raldis Chapman with that 30 game suspension accepts it uh, by agreeing to not appeal. 
What did you think about the suspension and the whole situation? Well, the thing that I think to take away from that is what a clean ship uh, the commissioner, Rob Manfred, is running. You know, this is his second year. Uh, he managed to avoid any of, and he's got two more cases, uh, Puig and Jose Reyes. So there's still chances for, you know, issues here. But in this first case with Chapman, he managed to avoid the kind of problems that Roger Goodell was falling into with the length of suspensions, being fought, going to court, losing in court, whether it's Ray Rice uh, or, or Deflategate, you know, serious or silly or whatever. Like, Goodell's had a lot of trouble with the discipline thing. So Manfred was able to negotiate with the union a 30-game solution here that nobody, you know, they had it all wrapped up in a bow in advance. They both issued statements, the union and the league, and it was good. So I think what Chapman did... Uh, is troubling, obviously. And you know what else is really troubling? Like, forget about Rob Manfred and how he's doing a nice job for a second. Uh, Chapman continues and, and continued till after the suspension was issued to say, I didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. Right. Uh, which I think a few people have rightly pointed out, like, all right, well, there was a child allegedly in the house where you were firing the gun. There was the woman who, you know, I guess is your 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 partner who is cowering in the bushes, allegedly. So the f- if that's your idea of not hurting anybody, I guess, like, psychological trauma isn't really something that you have discussed in your life. Right, exactly. Uh, so that was problematic. It's but also wh- a gun, and bullets ricochet, and he put two lives in a dangerous situation. Right, right. So yeah, no. he might not have thrown someone through a door, but it's still not a good situation. It's not a good look, right? Let's say it was a little closer to the line than you yeah. would like someone to be. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Now, now, what do we make of this is, like, sports commentators or whatever uh i don't i you know he's gonna his his job is to throw fastballs for the yankees when he comes back from the suspension mm-hmm. do we want someone who did that in their personal life to not be able to work anymore like how, how long I, these are like it's this is where you get into trouble like how many baseball games adequately punishes firing a gun in the ground I, I don't know it's a very tough thing yeah i guess you always have to know have to like if you've decided as I think we have that he acted badly. Yeah. Then we don't like him for that, or we don't like that he did that. But wh- where else do you take that? I hope he he gets the kind of help where he doesn't actually hurt someone at some point. Well, so that's, physically, that's my biggest thing is the getting help part, and which is why I don't really understand these these breaking it down into you know fractions of a season suspension. Mm-hmm. To me, that makes absolutely no sense. I think it should be very cut and dry. I think it should be half a season. Or a full season. Mm. And if you're suspended for the full season, that includes the postseason. You do not play for that entire season. So what would indicate, like, what's a full and half, what's a half season qualification in, in full? So that's kind of where, you know, there's a little bit of, of you know, you're, you're not really sure exactly how it falls into each category, but you would have, you know, Manfred and, and hopefully a committee decide that. With Chapman, I would think it, it falls into the half season category for me. And to me, I say half season category because I think that there's so much that goes into the emotional therapy that he needs to go through in order to go, you know, to fix this event and learn from this and and figure out how to handle it better in the future. All of that requires so much therapy and 30 games doesn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. 30 games, you know, you're still focusing on baseball. But if you get half a season off to sit down and work with the therapist, work with the social worker, however, you know, they see fit and go through weeks and weeks of counseling before you're allowed to step back on the field. That to me makes more sense. And that's going to be, I feel like, you know, better down the road for everyone, honestly, and for him rather than, okay, let's talk about how he's going to play on May 9th because Mm -hmm. May 9th is right around the corner and it doesn't even really seem like he's missing that much baseball. How do you go work on yourself and 
go through the therapy that you need to get through in order to be better and mm-hmm. come out a different person when you don't really have that much time to do it? It's a great question. This is why baseball really was asking for it when they stepped into these waters at all. You know, they were. Pr- I was reporting on this at the time when the Ray Rice stuff was going on. They were basically pressured into. They didn't just wake up one morning and say, we're not attuned to domestic violence. We must do something about it. You know, football got in trouble and baseball was getting asked questions. Why don't you have a policy? And they were like, we should probably get something set in writing before these things happen again. And, 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 you know, to look everything, this is corporate stuff. It's all to look better. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't, the people who run baseball, I'm sure, I I hope are genuinely against domestic violence. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you do this on a corporate level because you feel like, you know, you should, you need to protect yourself. So, yeah, they're, they're getting into all that stuff. Right. Um, and then you get into the question of, well, what is an employer's uh, responsibility here? I mean, if I did that, what should the Daily News do? Right. Or, But is baseball different because it's a public institution that uses public money? The Speaker of the City Council, Melissa Mark Viverito, you may have seen, has like been out taking this on as an issue, uh, tweeting and make, putting out statements about Chapman, how the Yankees shouldn't have acquired him. Uh, and, you know— Part of you wants to say, like, so people who do this should never work. I mean, that seems a little, like, simplistic as well. Right. The other party says, but the difference with sports teams is they are public. Uh, we, the taxpayers, paid for uh, a lot of the, what what the Yankees do. You know, the, the parking garages, the, the a lot of the facilities, uh, ta- tax-free bonds. That the, anyway, they're public trusts more than some companies are, so maybe that gives it more responsibility. But these are, you know, we could— now we're already like in the weeds of this conversation. This is the problem, right? Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah, you've covered a lot of athletes in your day, and I kind of want to use, uh, kind of wanted to use this Chapman conversation to transition into talking about how there are a lot of bad guys out there in mm-hmm. different clubhouses and and playing on different you know sports fields, and you've had to cover them. And does that create any sort of moral conflict for you because you're pushing stories about guys who have successful careers where? There might be stories behind the scenes that you know about them that you're either not allowed to report on or decide not to to touch or whatever the case may be that aren't good. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to wrestle with that. Yeah. Th- look, that's a big conflict of being a beat writer, and I never liked it, was that yeah. you get to know people really well, and you know more than is relevant to the – well, maybe it would be relevant if you really wanted to – if you really wanted to fully tell these guys' stories. Mm-hmm. You, you, you're, you're talking about adultery, drugs – uh, all, all you know, all kinds of things that are unflattering. Uh, there's a lot of ways to think about that. If you if you wrote a story about every moment of my life, you know, there'd be embarrassing things in there too. Yeah. So you know, where's the line? But if I'm a reporter assigned to cover these guys as baseball players, uh, you get to know them really well, so you can write accurately about them. You get to know as many of them as well as you can. I should say that's your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them you obviously just don't connect with, uh, but. Then, like, your job, your paper, your mandate from your paper is get news out of these guys. Ask them, from the, from the most basic, ask them about the at-bat in, in the ninth inning. Or, like, you know, make sure they'll talk to you if something bigger is going on. So, obviously, you don't, you try not to burn bridges. So, mm-hmm. you're in this eternal conflict when you're covering a beat. You're in the clubhouse every day between being too close and uh, you're not not close enough. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, I think it's pretty irresolvable. I, one of the things I like about this long-form writing now is that you develop these intense, uh, uh, knowledge, intense like you do, all your, you, you do subject for a couple of weeks, you get so deeply involved in it, and then you move on. So you don't have to say, like, oh, I might need this person for something some other time. Not that you burn them now. Like, you still try to be fair and ethical. Yeah. But I think a beat, as a beat writer, I held back uh, 
a lot of things. Like I'm I'm not gonna get into specifics now because if I'm not gonna write it in the paper, then I can't put it out anywhere. But like right. I heard solid stuff about lots of baseball players who I knew personally uh, doing illegal drugs. Like I think that marijuana and cocaine are pretty widespread in Major League Baseball right now. Yeah, which makes a ton of sense. Obviously, these are just wealthy young men. I mean, look. I, then you get into like. Do I care? It's a lot of things, right? right? Like, I mean, I smoke marijuana from time to time, okay? <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong. I, I and are you a pothead? <laughs> no, I'm not. You know, I, I don't know. I'm a parent now. I don't have time to be a pothead. But, I don't know, a couple times a year, if someone's got something to party, I'll smoke it. Uh, so, the, the reason I'm saying that is, like, who cares, right? So, do I want to write that? Go ahead, write it, you know? Uh, but I do think, like, so then you have to think of the line, like, uh Cocaine right now is a thing in baseball. To what extent, I'm not sure. Uh, and I don't ever, I've never seen it. I've never, like, if I saw it, I'd have to write it. Right. right. I've never seen it. But there's, like, a lot of gossip. So then the question becomes, like, to what extent do I investigate that gossip? Uh, and um, I would say a beat writer probably errs on the side of caution more often than, than, than I'll just speak for myself, more often than I should have. Right. Because you got to work the beat. Right. Of course. That'd be a concrete well, example. It's so... There's so much politics involved. It's really crazy. So I'll just add to that. Um, back when I was in a, a certain locker room, uh, I was aware of several guys cheating on their wives mm -hmm. with several different women. And in one specific case, um, a guy caught an STD and he was uh, excused from the team because of medical reasons that were never you know, released to the public. And I knew why. And I specifically knew why because I knew the woman who it had happened to you know, with this player. And it's one of those things where I'm not going to report that, that mm -hmm. somebody's, you know, private life. But if I were trying to make a name for myself or trying to get a, a you know, a quick buck off a story, that might be something I would do. And you kind of wrestle with that because it is something that I was covered, you know, I was assigned to cover. Should I put that out? But you learn very quickly that, no, you shouldn't because you need to keep your job and, and kind of save your ass. I think one of the things that's problematic there, too, is... Uh media being tied in with teams and again i'm not speaking judgmentally on this because I, I i do some work for smy as do you but like that changes it too to some extent yeah of course um with those kinds of stories and it, it shouldn't but i'm not considering pretend that we don't live in a world where uh it's not i mean it's it's it smy i i, I wouldn't be able to go on smy if they didn't give you all this I've never been told not to say something on that station, which is great. Yeah. But I think more broadly with league owned networks and team owned networks, uh, we're lucky to work for one that's very, very free and open with what you could say. But overall, there's a little bit more of I've seen it around the country. We're all in this together. Yeah. And that's the diff that's not media anymore. That's right. like you're part of the team and then that's just a different thing. So you you might cover stuff up that way. Um, but it helps you to be entrenched in the team in order yeah. to get, you know, stories and, and learn about these guys. Once you learn more about them, you get more out of them. Right. And at the same time, you see other things that you shouldn't possibly see. As long as there's stories that are relatively flattering, right? Because right. you're, you're, So that's where you get limited. Now, I'm in an interesting position because I work for the Daily News and do some work for SMY. Right. Uh, so if I've, I, I consider, I'm very lucky. I'm so, I would not want to let go of either of those things mm -hmm. because- if I find out something that I can prove, we talk about the cocaine thing before. Like, it's not like I didn't write a story that I had. Right. I don't have it. Right. It's just like around, and it's an example of something you know is around. Da, da, da. Again, if I saw it, I would have written it. Uh, or if someone had said to me, like, this specific player at this specific time does this, and right. it's preventing him from being good at the. I write that. So I'm lucky. I have the daily news to write that. Right. Put that there. Yeah. But if you get your entire income uh, from a, a team or a league, 
and they're like, you know, you're not writing that. That that's a problem of media control that is something that's going on in sports for sure. And again, mm-hmm. I'm not sitting here on a high horse about it because yeah. I do do that work, but uh, I you know I'm lucky to have the other outlet too. It's it's the other thing is like it's all changing because a lot of people have other outlets. Look at one of my um, one of my idols in the baseball end of the business is Ken Rosenthal because I think he does such a good job of this. He's on the payroll at MLB Network, mm-hmm. uh, and he he works for Fox, which is a broadcast you know partner with with the games, the World Series games. So there's relationships there on the business level. Uh, but he says what he wants. He writes what he wants. He puts opinions out there, and he just says, "I have to look myself in the mirror that I'm honest and, and, and don't hold anything back." And 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 that's a good way to live by. But if you get and the really controversial stuff, like the one you just described, mm-hmm. I think if you're if you're getting if you're making your living working for the team, then you know that like that's that's something to look at. It's a fine line. You mm-hmm. also have to remember who else is involved in the story. If you're dragging people's children or people's wives into the story that it becomes a whole different animal mm-hmm. that way and that is definitely not something you were assigned to do so you can't mm. really go down that path yeah for sure has there anybody ever been a story that you've put out that afterwards you were almost either wishing or praying that you didn't put out or you were nervous mm. that it came out or that there were going to be any sort of repercussions either from the athlete the team or from your paper uh sure i mean and and the B is very stressful because anytime you have any, it could be dumb news like so and so has a forearm strain and like you're terrified until someone else puts that out, right? Uh, because you just you, you you don't publish anything until you know it's right, but you still have this weird voice. You're like, what if three people told me wrong? I don't know. It's irrational. Yeah. No, so, of course. So there's that. Um, there's but so you don't regret that stuff because it's news. If the stuff you regret, I regret. I would say is when I've been. Uh, let myself get a little too free reign with being a little snarky or like critical because cheap shots are really easy to take. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm trying to think. I'll give you two. You know what? I, uh, an athlete who I don't have a good relationship with is Zach Wheeler, and I will give you a uh, uh, example of something I wrote about him. It's why he doesn't like me uh, that I don't regret. Okay. And then something that I do regret. I'm okay. the same guy, so I'll be concrete about this. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, when he was still in the minor leagues, he uh, hit in a, in a, back, a game in the backfields. You've been to Port St. Lucie, you know, like they play these minor league games in the backfields where yep. the big league games are going on. Mm-hmm. He hit a player on the hand, a player named Adeline Rodriguez, who's never made the major leagues. Uh, and Rodriguez, like, stepped out toward the mound, and Wheeler, like, puffed his chest out. And there's, like, almost nobody there. And you're like, what the hell's going on? These are all, ma-? like, it's an inner squad game. What's uh-huh. going on? Yeah. So I asked some people around about it. And what what turned out it happened was uh, R- Rodriguez had pimped a home run earlier, like, I think a couple days earlier. I don't remember offhand, but it recently pimped a home run off Wheeler, uh-huh. uh, really, really badly. Like grabbed the fence in the dugout when he walked by, pumped his fist in the air, all this stuff. So Wheeler threw at him uh, the next time he faced him because he was pissed that that Rodriguez pimped a home this run. This is the guy in his own organization. Yeah, right. It's an inter squad <laughs> game. So that's like interesting enough for a little item. But then yeah. what I heard was. You know, the Mets uh, minor leagues all go in this huge, like, airplane hangar-like clubhouse in Port St. Lucie. And then the clubhouse broke out, and it was basically like a racially-based huge fight. The Latin players and the white players were going at each other on those terms, which came off of that thing. And in the coaches' room, like, middle-aged coaches from Latin America and and white Americans were going at each other on race. Oh, my god! So I, this happened. Uh-huh. and. I was, believe me, if you're going to write something like that, you make every extra call you can. Yeah. The first guy who told it to me, two minutes before we published, I called him, are you sure that there was a racially, st-? He's like, yes, yes, you got to be sure, right? Yeah. Uh, so I put it out there, and I did not write that Zach Wheeler 
uh, through at Adelon Rodriguez because of race uh, at all. Like, that was not part of the story. What happened later, it's almost like we were talking about before. It's not the actions. It's people's reaction to them that's interesting, right? right. So that was all accurate. Uh, uh, I heard through intermediaries many times over the years, Wheeler won't speak to me about it, uh, that he felt that I wrote that he was a bigot because he threw at the player, and I didn't. I, you know, I, I didn't, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's an example where a, a relationship with a player who is very important in the organization would be. I'd be better off if I had a relationship with uh-huh. got totally burned because I wrote a story that I still believe. I think of all my time news reporting, that was the one. That's the one I'm most proud of because it's like not just someone pulled a hamstring. It's something that happened that tells you about the dynamics. So I'm proud of that story. Were you the only one who had that story? Uh, uh, one other writer had it and didn't publish it until I, uh, published mine for for some reason. Why did you Uh, take the fall first, huh? Well, that speaks to the idea of, I don't want to say I'm above it, it speaks to the idea of, like, holding, calculating how to pull your punches. Of course, yeah. Uh, I I put things out before, after people, like, okay, I gotta write this. So I'm not gonna judge, but, um, so I don't regret any piece of that, but I regret the, now I did another thing with Zach Wheeler, trying to think if this happened before or after. Um, I I wrote like a snarky tweet about him. Oh, I know. Ike Davis had, had a walk off hit, and Wheeler was still in the minor leagues. And Wheeler tweeted something about like, uh, "Congratulations, Ike, way to go!" And I just being like an asshole, and I was just like, "Hey, uh, easy there, Las Vegas, or some, something like that." <laughs> and it was like, and I thought about it, and I was like, immediately, like, I had did all my homework on this other story. Totally credible, totally serious story, could stand behind what I mean. And then I got to go and just, like, make this tossed-off comment. Uh-huh. And in that one, like, I can't answer to that. If he wants to have an argument with me about the about the story, about the fight, we could have it. Now, he's never been willing to... I've had people go to him and say, Andy's willing to talk to you about this. Let's just... Come on, we're adults here. He won't do it. He's so mad about it. And this is years ago. Wow. Uh, we've talked about other things, not not particularly well. Yeah. Uh, but that's that for that one. Uh, but it's, again, it's worth it. But I can't stand there. If you were ever to bring up a tweet like that, uh, I can't defend that. That was me being a jerk. So there's one I regret and one I don't. That's almost why I never sarcastically tweet. Because sarcasm might comes... Might as well not. Yeah. You might as well not. It comes across so weird to different people and nobody can read sarcasm well, especially if it's super dry, that I just put out facts. I'm like, you know, Girardi said this today. And I write a quote and then people comment on it and write whatever they want to and take whatever they want from it. But it's so hard to sarcastically tweet, especially about athletes, first of all, because they can read it. And second of all, because they can respond to it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you're just basically dead in the water. Why put yourself out there like that's that? Why, Do you want people to know you're funny? It's a good. No, it's great. It's it, I'm too sarcastic to tweet. Plus, I only yeah. have 12 followers, so no one gives a shit what I have to say. So. <laughs> but you'd be surprised. Some, the right person like catches it. That's the dangerous thing about yeah. Twitter, right? Uh, I know fans have been blocked by players like, from just like subtweeting them. First all, of all, these guys are way too sensitive. But all I do, but, you know, all I do is tweet thing. at Ocho Cinco to play me in FIFA, and he still hasn't yet. So I mean, that's, <laughs> there that's you just go. It. You that's all that fears. But he has actually played guys who have tweeted him on Twitter. He plays plenty of people, so I, there's hope that there's I will hope. play Ocho Cinco. One day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Social media that you were like, damn, that should not have gone out. Well, I definitely stay away from uh, nudity. Uh, <laughs> no nude pics, no dick no, pics. No, from you. none of that. No, uh, you saw what happened to Anthony Weiner. No, um, <laughs> uh, just things. Honestly, and seriously, the regret stuff would just be like I have another. Probably several examples of things where I was just like, I'm a reporter. Sometimes I'm an analyst where I get to have an opinion, but that doesn't isn't licensed to just be snark. You're a jerk with no basis, and I've done that. You know, you like it's right. My phone's right there, so it's like yeah. sometimes you're in a mood. 
So I've tried to train myself to pull back on that over the years. So my stories and my work are, are, are not undermined by like just being a jerk. So, so that would be the regret. Throughout your whole career and all the decisions that you've made, are those the kind of things that if you could go back, you would change? Or are there other things that if you could do over, you would do again? Uh, well, that's interesting. Um, I'm happy with, with, with where things have taken me to this moment. I, that, that can always evolve. You know, something <laughs> could go wrong. Uh, but it's hard to undo one thing. Uh, and, I mean, I'm glad. I didn't want to be a baseball beat writer because I was interested in doing this, like, long-form work. But it didn't turn out to be a regret at all. Uh, I got great advice on, on taking that opportunity when it came to me. But you um, grew up a baseball fan, right? Yeah, I did, more uh-huh. than any other sport. I just thought that writing about the games day in and day out would be drudgery. And mm-hmm. it, it was after a while, but it teaches you how to deal with sources. It teaches you how to be a reporter. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the my influences early on was a guy named TJ Quinn, who's at ESPN now, who, covering like the PED beat, who did the Mets for the Daily News years ago. And he told me, like, treat the beat like med school. Uh, like, it's it's a grind, and it's hard on your family and your personal life, but... Um, uh, it, it teaches you how to be a reporter for the rest of your life. So I don't have professional regrets in terms of, like, the, that path. Uh, you talk about personal life. I mean, it's not easy to be a husband and parent when you're on the road, literally. And my hotel nights when I was on the beat would be 100, about 180 nights a year. Wow. So and for how many years? Uh, I did that. I did the. I was a beat writer for four years and then another three as a columnist, which is a lot of travel, almost all spring training, all playoffs, various trips in the season. So still uh, a grind. So I can't say that I regret it, but I would certainly could look at like uh, being very career driven in those times and, and not being home a lot that, w- that was tough and that took some work to make sure that uh, that we were on the same page once I got off the beat. Like, you know, oh, marriages yeah. go through ups and downs of career ambition. And that one was a place where I went way with the career ambition and, and uh, definitely uh, again, regrets are tough because unless you're miserable with where you are in life, everything took you to an okay place. But right. that would be uh, the part that, I mean, we could we look at specifics that I don't have to get into, but it was, could be hard. Yeah, yeah relationship long yeah. distance is one of the worst right. things that you could possibly do because it affects both people. And then that starts affecting other people in everyone's lives and it kind of just branches out. And then right. it's just kind of one of those diseases that just keeps spreading. Um, Lovely, huh? Yeah, fun, I know, fun it's so stuff. Great. Long distances. So, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so let's go. Let's you just go smoke a lot of weed, and then it, uh, then it's fun. <laughs> a couple times a year, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who's been your favorite athlete to cover? You know, it was an it was really an amazing story covering R.A. Dickey when he was on the Mets because yeah. it touched so many different uh, avenues of things to write about. First of all, it was a good person who I developed a good rela- personal relationship with. Uh, really interesting guy to talk to had varied interest, read books that you could talk about in the clubhouse, just like a nice relief. But that's very immaterial to like what the job is. And what he did as a writer, so he comes up as a 35-year-old knuckleballer journeyman who's been in the minor leagues almost his entire life, uh, comes up with the Mets, has some success. He's, he's an okay pitcher for a couple years. Then he decides he's going to publish a memoir saying he was sexually abused when he was a kid. Comes out, I'm, I'm uh, what was I doing that year? I was still on the Mets beat, 2012. Uh, he's standing in the clubhouse going, I was talking about it the day the book came out i was i was raped i was molested uh and like his teammates are craning their necks like what what, what is he talking about like i can imagine his heart was racing i'll say i mean i had dinner with him uh the night before that uh and he was like terrified so i had a lot of respect standing there that day with him he's just like yes this is what happened da, da, da. it's like and and victims he heard from a lot of victims 
after that, like, thank you for sharing your story. It emboldened me to, to share mine and that kind of thing. So that mm-hmm. was a real purpose. So that's incredible right there, like, just material as a writer to work with. And then the guy goes out and wins the goddamn Cy Young Award <laughs> that year when he was never that good. And he was unburdened by, like, he told this thing. He's like, ah. Oh. And then he wins 20 games and wins the Cy Young Award. I'm watching this. I'm going through this year watching this. And I cannot believe what I'm seeing. And then that winner, he gets traded. And there's all this drama between him and the Mets. And that trade was fascinating to cover because he got mad at the Mets for lowballing him with a contract offer. The Mets got t- furious with him for like being too involved in the process and complaining too much. It was just, uh, I mean, it, it was so dramatic from year in and year out. And when I... When Dust settled on that trade and he went to the Blue Jays, we had a phone conversation where I just said, you know, I got to tell you, like, I, I could be in this business for another 30 years and I doubt I'll ever cover a story as interesting as you. And that's not, like, I like him as a guy or whatever, but that's not even what I'm saying. I'm saying I will never. This was crazy. All those things I just described, that really happened. So. Yeah. I think they're making a movie. The movie rights were optioned to his book, so it's 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 that was that good. It's gonna be like a Hollywood. Well, that's movie. why I speak to the value of therapy. I'm telling mm. you that unburdening yourself does sure. a lot for your abilities for the sport and stuff like Chapman getting that off of his chest is gonna be a huge bonus for his success. I, you know, I I only advocate therapy for guys like that and for them to take off doing what they do best to make them better at their jobs. Not because I think that they shouldn't be able to ever do their jobs, which is the opposite. It'll make them better and, you know, it'll make everyone around them uh, trust them more. And, you know, there are there are a lot of benefits. But like you speak to with R.A. Dickey, the unburdening of it all is a huge relief and really does help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the one thing you worry about with Chapman is he doesn't, you have to have an, if you're going to be in therapy in your life, you have to come into it with a willingness and a self-awareness to make some kind of change, right? When he's going, I didn't hurt anybody. That's like, wow, dude, you got a long way to go before you could even hear a therapist yeah. or something. So, yeah, that's true. But I agree with what you're saying for sure. Yeah, hopefully they can get through that and then uh, get to what the actual you know, cause of right. all this is. What's been your favorite sports moment either to write about or that you've witnessed in your life? Uh, to witness, I got to say it was hard to beat the uh, Derek Jeter's uh, game-winning hit uh, in his last home game as a Yankee, that uh-huh. was incredible. Uh, yeah. And I don't, you know, I mean, people are always like, well, what are you a fan? I'm, I'm not a Yankee fan nor a Yankee hater. Just was covering the game, and that was another one. You're like, you got to be kidding me. This did not just happen. Yeah. And one thing that nobody saw, which is fascinating, people, so uh, the Yankees had a three-run lead in the top of the ninth inning. Uh, so everyone's chanting, Derek Jeter, the game's about to end, and he's going to come off it as a shortstop defensively. So that's how the game's going to end. And he was getting emotional, which is so unlike him. And he was struggling. He was like, I remember later he admitted, he's like, don't hit it to me, please don't hit it. He was really struggling, which is like not, you know, that must have been a very extreme moment for him. That's not like him. And this is what nobody saw uh, or remembered. I don't know if it's ever been captured on film, but David Robertson, the Yankees closer at the time, gives up a three-run homer. And as the ball goes over the wall, Jeter crouches down and grabs his head and he's like, no! And you can see it and he's like totally showing up a teammate under any other circumstance. He's like, very demonstrative. And he's like, I can't take it. And I thought that was so fascinating to see him that raw. He's like, I can't stay on the field any longer. You've got to be kidding me. This is a tie game. And that was so interesting. And then someone in the press box jokes like, well, it's obviously just setting up the game-winning hit. And we're, like, we've done this a long time. You're like, ha ha, all right, whatever. And then when he comes up in that situation, you're still like, no. And then he gets the hit. And the moment was, you know, I, I believe it was a single to right center. And he jumps up in the air with his arms in the air. And his teammates mob him. And in that situation, 
as a writer, you're furiously rewriting on deadline. It's like very, very, it's the hardest thing about being a sports. You're like, oh my God, my whole story is no longer relevant. I got to rewrite it all. Deadline's coming up. So you're doing that and you know, I've never had an emotional investment in the end of a game that I've been writing about. Uh And that one, I wasn't emotionally invested in it, but like the whole press button, you just put your hands down on the table, your lap or whatever. You're not typing. You're just like, Come on, you gotta be kidding me! You just like this did not happen. And you, there was a couple of seconds there where even we sports writers froze. And like, you, and and Jeter didn't ha- doesn't have a great relationship with most sports writers, and it's not like, ah, oh, you big galoot, I'm so happy for you. It's just like, <laughs> I just can't believe it happened. So that to me was the tops that I actually had to had to cover. Oh, it was nice that you guys got to be able to pause for a moment and take that yeah, in. Yeah, you couldn't help it. Yeah, I have a couple. So I was at Cal Ripken's twenty one thirty one, which you talked oh, about cool. on the show on uh, Baseball Night in New York, which I was young, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I remember it kind of fleetingly, but to me that was, you know, one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen. And just the love that he got from that city. And my dad explained to me for the first time what a curtain call was because right. he came out and my dad said, oh, look, there's the curtain call. And I was kind of like, what's that? It was that? like the best one ever. That yeah, ever yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a great one. And then recently I saw Jeter's last game at Fenway and Kobe's last game at TD Garden. And I have to say, I've been, you know, I've been very fortunate to go to both those games but I've heard a lot of people give Boston fans a lot of flack over the years. I don't know. To me, it was pretty amazing that they gave both Jeter and Kobe standing ovations, chanted their name throughout the entire game. Um, I haven't necessarily seen that throughout you know, the country and all the different places that uh, the, those two had gone on their farewell tour. Mm-hmm. And to me, I was just very impressed with Boston because I hadn't ever you know, gotten that impression that those, that's what the fans were like. And, and they were. At least what I witnessed, I thought it was pretty. It That's was cool. pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. What to you would be a story, a sports story that you've never written about that you want to write about? Hmm. Um. Boy, that's a that's another really good question. Um. Oh, okay. I uh, when the first star professional athlete comes out as gay, uh, like the openly like the guy who's on the Derek Jeter caliber star. Uh, it comes out, and I mean now the uh, that's happened in a couple of leagues where fringier players have have come out, and I think that's been tremendously courageous and and a social uh, moment of social progress that's been important. Uh, but it'll be interesting when somebody like a clubhouse leader, an all star, uh, does that and how they do it and everything. That that's going to be a fascinating story. I watched a. Real sports this weekend about Rick Welts, mm-hmm. the uh, the president of the Golden State Warriors, and and about his journey coming out. And he is he is a PR guru, mm-hmm. and they were talking all about how amazing he's been throughout his career, uh, kind of formulating stories and and flipping them into into good as PR uh, is known to do. Right. And he was talking about how he was on the Magic Johnson beat essentially, and how he at the time was dealing with being nervous about potentially having HIV as a gay male and having to deal with Magic's basically entire PR campaign coming out as a guy you know who's HIV positive and it was really interesting to watch him in his personal life you know as the story unfolded him in his personal life dealing with the issue and then also helping somebody as a public figure um, and, and just watching it all and having Magic go on Sesame Street and talk about, you know, AIDS and, and HIV and stuff like that. It was, it was really, really interesting. Any of the um, the fringe athletes who have come out, have they ever inspired you to write anything about their lives or you want the superstar? Well, I think the superstar speaks to a different level of uh, uh, impact in the culture uh, because that forces people who are homophobic to say like, Okay, the guy with the talent 
that the guy with the Tom Brady talent who represents manhood uh, in, in a classic way to the extent that I'm idealizing it is gay. I really have to face that manhood and macho uh, uh, behavior doesn't mean what I think it means. Yeah. Uh, but the fringe guys, like one guy in baseball, Billy Bean, not the A's GM Moneyball, but an, a, a, a utility player named Billy Bean who who came out after he played, wrote a book, and now works for baseball in an inclusion capacity, is doing good work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was good. I, I, had an, I It was interesting writing about him uh, and interviewing him on a couple of occasions uh, now where there's been other things that have happened around sports, and he's very positive about the progress, which is great, and his role, uh, he knows a lot more than I do about the issue. I've seen a lot of uh, homophobic stuff in the locker room that makes me maybe not as uh, uh, hopeful that it, things would go over well. But that's the thing. If it's a really prominent player... If it's the team captain who's already at that status, what are guys going to say? Right. Uh, in baseball, there's a lot of right-wing religion, and that's the politics of the clubhouse a lot. So there's yeah. a lot of, like, the best you hear from a lot of guys is, uh, well, I mean, I don't agree with that lifestyle choice, but I would never hate somebody. That was Daniel Murphy said. Oh, I hate uh, that guy. So, well, that's strong. <laughs> Look, Murphy, that's a whole other thing. And what I admired about him, uh, the day that he said that initially uh, to reporters— I had to write a column about it, so I got him on the phone, and I said, okay, like, uh, here's where I'm coming from, here's where you're coming from, let's have a respectful debate. And he, he, we, I wrote a column in which I was like, I feel this, and he's like, what I said, it's a lifestyle choice. And I'm like, you know, people don't believe that. And he says, well, I'm sorry, but I do, because of my church. And I, he engages in a way, he gives public voice to something that so many other people are murmuring about, mm-hmm. that like, okay, thanks. Now I no longer have to say, trust me, guys, feel this way. Now Daniel Murphy will put his name to it, which I appreciate, right? Right, uh, but uh, I understand that well, he's just so reluctant. wrong. He's just so wrong. Right. I mean, it's not a right or a wrong issue. He's just right. wrong, and that's what makes me so mad that you have people who are just blindly inaccurate about the subject, speaking out and having a, you know a soapbox to be able to have people go. You know what? He's now vocalizing exactly how I feel. Yes, mm. that's what I mean. That's what I've been saying for years. Uh, you know that. Well, that's fair that enough. Me up. That it's, sucks. it's an interesting moment. I mean, that mentality of it's going to get someone maybe elected president right now, right? It's like, no, right. oh, he's racist. I'm racist. Right. They're awesome. So I, I hear you. And these guys do have a platform that gives them power. Yeah. Uh, so it's dangerous to use it for for purposes of hate. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So with a couple of your long form stories that you've written, I've I've read two. I've read Bigfoot and I've read Ghost. Mm-hmm. What are the other ones that you've done so far? I did one on the winter meetings. Right. I've uh, read that. Okay. I read that one uh, too. And uh, in the year before we created the department, after Taylor Swift, we, we, we did a handful of sort of medium sized pieces while I was still a baseball writer. But those are the ones that they're more, the ones you mentioned are the more, more uh, recent ones. ones. Yeah. Which one was your favorite out of Bigfoot and Actually, we'll we'll throw winter meetings in there too. Winter meetings and ghost. Uh, the ghost was about a, a homeless man. I would I would pick that because it felt like I was uh, able to tell a story that was a little bit more pressing, more important than how did the Mets get Ben Zobrist. I mean, that was interesting too on some levels. But um, what I did for Ghost was this is this guy's nickname. His name is Fernando Lopez. He lives in the subway station at Fifty First in Lexington. And he's a guy who he doesn't uh, he doesn't have a drug problem he doesn't have severe mental illness he's just kind of been lost in the system uh, he has a traumatic brain injury from when he was uh, hit by a car 15 years ago and just kind of in and out of shelters got stabbed in a shelter once so doesn't want to do that uh, alone in the street uh, just day in and day out and spends eight ten twelve hours a day in the public library in the wintertime watching Netflix he has a disability check that he gets every month adds up to about ten grand a year. Which is an interesting thing too. It's like you can make some money in New York and not have nearly enough to consider getting 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 housing. Yeah. Um, 
so being out, he granted me total access, anything that I wanted. He was a guy who totally got it. Like this, let's hey, let's, let's tell the story. And I went through some other folks who I talked to and were like, I feel weird about having my name out there attached to this. I want to get a job again someday, which I totally understood. Yeah. To Fernando's credit, uh, he was like, this story should be told. Go ahead. So yeah. I was just with him, sort of day and night for a while at various times. During that, he had like he was clinging to this sort of hope that. He was going to get engaged to this woman, and, and, and they were going to find a place together and move out of the city. And she turned out, apparently, to be after his money and cheating on him and stuff. So he became suicidal. So it got very dramatic during the reporting process. Uh, he essentially texted you a suicide note. Yeah, right, which is how I ended up. And what was what was uh, appreciated about him was he got the idea that, like, this is a story that, if it's going to have an impact, needs to be told fully. Uh, so with something like that, of course, the humanity piece is first, like— so I asked him, but he was fine. I could write anything he said or did, and uh, that gave us a portrayal of what it's like to live on the street in anonymity. Uh, so that was a difficult you know, process to go through with him. Um, obviously, not a fr- I mean, a, as a writer, you get to walk away when you're done with the story, which is all the difference in the world. Uh, but that was probably my favorite piece in that, however well or not well executed it may have been, uh, the content, you know, the information itself, the access he gave me, moved people about something that was important. So that, that's what I would have to choose. I mean, the title Ghost to me just made me think, does that story haunt you at all afterwards? Do you think about Fernando? Sure. You know, when you're laying in bed at night and you have the luxury of having a roof over your head and, you know, you have a wife and kids and all the things that you could ever, you know, really need or, or, or want. Do you think about him at all? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, one thing that is hard to explain, it sounds... I don't want it to sound cold, but it's what I feel is professional is to, uh, and I learned this uh, before I got into this uh, business. I, I spent three years as a high school teacher in a school in Brooklyn that had, uh, you know, some wonderful kids with some issues with some kids were coming from some tough backgrounds and, and, and some of the stories were sad. And it was like, if I get like too emotionally invested in this, I'm not gonna be able to help them. My job is to teach English. Right. My job is to like and help you with whatever stuff is going on in your life to the extent that I can. But like if I if I get really upset, I'm not gonna be able to do that. So right. I, I feel like the same way as a reporter, like I don't have enough money to change your life. I don't have uh I really what I have, what I can offer is a platform, a large platform to tell your story. And that's how I can serve you. Mm-hmm. So I had to make sure to just be as emotionally clear-minded as I could to tell a story. I mean, we've stayed in touch a little and texted and stuff, and I think I'll see him again. Um, but as a professional, you have to, like, it's not cold-hearted. It's like, this is how I can help you. But it's like by, by remaining somewhat emotionally uh, at a remove, you know? Mm-hmm. And on the complete opposite side of the ghost story was the Bigfoot story. Right. Well, how did that come about? How did you start writing about That was just weirdos? an assignment. <laughs> yeah, that, it was fun. The, the um, Jim Rich, the guy who created this department, one of his ideas, he noticed there was a Bigfoot hoax in Prospect Park uh, about a year or so ago. And it was like one of the most widely read stories of the year in the Daily News website. So I remember him calling me to the office one day and he's like, showing that he's got the numbers or something, and he's like, how the fuck in 2015 or 14, whatever it was, do people believe this? This is not possible. We have smartphones, we have cameras, and people still clicking on this. Find out for me why, you know, it's sort of like, it, when you work at the Daily News, it's actually a little bit like uh, Spider-Man or something, like the editor's yelling at it. It's like, ah, it's kind of like that. Like in, it's like actually book. out of a movie. There's a little bit of that, so that's kind of what it was like, find me, Bigfoot, why do people care about this? So I was like, okay. I mean, that was a tough assignment. It's like, why do people care about something that doesn't exist? So I just started going to like 
Bigfoot museums and Bigfoot conventions. Sometimes you just get lucky. Brandy, who works at SNY as a yeah. producer, her uh, father-in-law it runs one of the biggest Bigfoot museums in, in the world, I guess. Yeah. International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. Uh, <laughs> there's a plug. And it's, it's a fun visit. It's worth So I went and talked to him. He got me set on, like, talk to this guy, that guy. And you eventually talk to people who... Uh, a lot of people who believe in this stuff, and the job there was just to portray it again respectfully. Like, it's a fun topic, but um, you know what I kind of ran into? What? was like, just in my mind, it was like, uh, I believe in God. I cannot prove that any more than you can prove this. So therefore, I'm living in a glass house here. So that was the mentality I tried to approach that. Huh, that's interesting. Because I was going to ask you what you take away from these people in terms of their mental state, because a lot of it, you would just seem like they're crazy and they are like sick in the head. Okay, uh, and I'm going to sit here and tell you, you know, a guy uh, actually uh, uh, was uh, died, uh, went up to the sky, came back down, uh, and then we had Easter. It's like, okay, who's crazy here? <laughs> I know, but I'm, gonna, but I'm going to tell you, I don't, I don't believe any of that. Okay, well, so then you can from, judge. Right, so I can, <laughs> right. I can be the biggest judge. Fair enough. Any, any other interesting facts come out of that Bigfoot story? Anything that, that kind of struck you like, whoa, this is really, just yes. the fact that people, yeah? There was... Uh, Everyone was like, find out about the Orang Pendek. You go down this rabbit hole of like all this. You're like, well, what's that? And like, it's this thing that is in the jungles of Sumatra in Indonesia, which is like a small Bigfoot. And no one's like, it actually might exist. People are real close to finding it. And that's the key to Bigfoot. Because if this thing is real, Bigfoot could be in North America. So I ended up talking to like serious science people. This organization in England that funds all this like research about endangered species and everything. And they funded research into this thing, the Orang Pendek. And they were like, we didn't find it, but we did research it. We are a serious organization. We have lots of people in the field who say they've seen it. And it's like a man-ape kind of thing that's just smaller than Bigfoot. So it's like, if that exists, and that was ended up being basically my story. Yeah. If that thing turns up to be true, that's a lot closer to being found, then it's harder to say that Bigfoot does it. So... I did not come away from this thinking that there was a Bigfoot, but I came away from it thinking that, like, uh, there's more to it that you could get into than, than you might have thought. Yeah, just like um, religion, we're wasting so much money on this. It's unbelievable <laughs> to me. I can't even wait. You're funding it? That's crazy to me. Little Bigfoot, if mm. that even exists. Point, who uh, cares if it does? Could fine. be one point. Spend right. the money on someone else. But anyway, Exactly. Yeah. All right, we end every podcast with an embarrassing story. I have spent 12 podcasts basically opening up my entire life to people who I don't know. Um, Andy, it's, it's, it's awful. Oh, my God, it's terrible. Uh, Andy, it's your turn. I need an embarrassing story from you, please. Oh, boy. Help save me. Um, I mean, I've just humiliated myself so many times in private and in public. Uh, you can do two. You can cover me with one if you want. How do you That's choose? Fine. Uh, I'll do the Speedo thing, because that one ended up with me on, on, I'm 35 years old. You were there, you presented me with the Speedo. I was hoping I wouldn't have to, that you would do this, so I wouldn't have to ask you about this during the podcast. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, twice before I was 30, well, I'm 35, so twice before I turned 36, I was presented with a Speedo on, on television. Uh, (laughs) how did I get myself into this mess? Uh, the the short version of the story is, I covered the Phillies in 09, came to cover the Mets since the Daily News here in, in, in 2010, Cliff Lee was a free agent. My Philly sources, I, I mean, I'm just chatting with him at the winter meetings. I wasn't even covering this. They were telling me, like, we're not signing Cliff Lee. Da, da, da. He's after too much money. So uh, there were Cliff Lee trade rumors that popped up. Excuse me. Uh, sign, whatever. Free agency rumors with the Phillies. And I just put this line on my blog that was, uh, if Cliff Lee signs with the Phillies, I'll cover spring training in a Speedo. I don't remember writing it. I don't remember where I don't know where it came from. Why am I thinking about speedos? I can't answer these. That's where you, I need therapy right, to find yeah. out why I even thought of this. So I forgot all about it. Like Cliff Lee signs with the Phillies 
a month or so later. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it was not even that long. And I, I didn't remember. This is how much this little this meant to me. I didn't even remember. The next morning I wake up. And someone texts me or maybe emails me a video. Yeah, it must have been or sends me a Facebook message or something of Keith Olbermann, who had the MSNBC show at the time, who made me one of his worst persons in the world for for the Speedo prediction. Now that Cliff Lee said it. So I was like, huh, okay, that happened. And then I remembered that I wrote it. uh, And I was just like, well, I know that's like the most popular show in in cable news right now, but maybe no one will notice, you know. Then USA Today wrote about it. Then CNN called me and they were like, we want you on the morning show tomorrow to talk about this. And I was like, oh, great. I'm trying to, you know, be a reporter and now I'm a novelty act. So So I called my boss, my sports editor at the time, uh, Terry Thompson, and she said, you know, basically she was laughing at me. And so I was in trouble. So that was good. She's like, at this point, my advice is, you know, own it. You, you did it. Have fun with it. So I'll go on the show. So I go on CNN's morning show and they present me on live TV with the Speedo. And I take it and we're just like, you know, I was like, ha ha. Um, so so we did that. And and then it was like, well, how are you going to cover spring training in a Speedo? And I was like, well, I know I'm not going to allow there to be a photograph of me reporting on baseball in only a Speedo. I would rather be accused of backing out of the bet than ha- – like, that's- photos are forever, man, right? <laughs> so, so what I ended up doing was I took Dan Warren, and the pitching coach, who has a great sense of humor. I slipped on the CNN Speedo over my clothes, and we staged a picture of me interviewing him. And I put it out there, and I was like – if this isn't good, I, you know, I, I since I'm like, thank God I didn't say only a speedo. I know this is a hedge, but if this isn't good enough for you, you're just gonna have to. Plus, deal with you it. never had to go inside the clubhouse wearing the speedo. Yeah. You could stand outside of the doors and. I just wasn't gonna do it. Yeah, I mean, I'd already made it. You, you don't want to be the story. I'd already been the story. You can't. It's one thing in the off season when you go into a clubhouse. I mean, it's not. Can't be about you. So I, I did that. Uh, so it was embarrassing to go through the whole thing. I mean, I did try to have fun with it, but what was. Also embarrassing to like half-assedly do it because it was like the most. I was like, yes, I know, I totally like bailed on on fully fulfilling this, but you know, what are you gonna do? So that was not something that uh, will be uh, hopefully uh, remembered too strongly about me. But then, oh right, on Baseball Night in New York, uh, our our smartass producers, we were Alexis role in one episode was to give uh, Christmas gifts, and I she presented me with a speedo. Uh, which out of context could seem a little inappropriate, uh, <laughs> but but there, because of the backs I'm not on live television, especially. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I'm still. That was five years ago. I'm still living it down. That was a uh, courtesy of Mike Flynn, who decided to go yeah. on to Amazon and Google uh, hot pink speedo, which mm-hmm. we then ended up uh, showing on air. I'll, I'll post a picture of, from that episode on our Instagram. Andy, thank you so much for being here, fans. If you want to check out Andy on Twitter, it's at MartinoNYDN. We're at the Red Bull Studios. If you want to check them out, they are RB Studios NY. Kyle Sheldon, thank you so much for being here as well. And let's go get a snack.